This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. I don't know how many of you have ever read Theodor Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Big, thick Russian novels. I don't think these Russians write any short books. Oh, you've read it. Okay. Anybody here read just out of curiosity if you've read it? Well, he deals in this book with a lot of themes about God and the meaning of life and death and just questions that I guess everybody has. And there's one scene in this novel which basically it's two guys in a restaurant talking. And Dostoevsky's the only writer I know who can go on for 200 pages having two guys talking and pull it off and hold you enthralled. And they're two brothers. One of them's a monk and the other one's kind of a socialist, uh, a skeptic, an atheist. And they're having a discussion about the existence of God and does God exist? And of course, the monk is arguing for the existence of God. The atheist is, you know, the socialist is arguing against it. And at one point, the socialist, Ivan Karamazov is his name. He tells a story, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. There's probably is, and there's enough horrific stuff out there anyway. He told about a, a serf and a serf boy who lived on some Russian landowner's estate. And the, the boy threw a rock and injured the paw of, this, the, of the estate owner's favorite dog. And the state owner had the child taken out, had everybody out there in front of his mother, had the child stripped naked, and then told the child to run. And as the boy ran, and the, um, he set the dogs on him and then just ripped the boy apart in front of his mother. Now, Ivan's reason for telling that story and the story about how the Turks in Bulgaria threw Slavic children up in the air and then caught them on the ends of their bayonets. Or he told a story about someone, some parents who locked their five-year-old daughter in a cold basement and made her eat excrement, you know, and on and on. He brought a number of these horrible stories was to ultimately asked the question, how could these stories and all these other horrible evils ever be justified even at the end of time when a divine harmony is to be restored, when all the insufferable questions are to be resolved, when God's ways are to forever be vindicated before men and angels. And I want to read you a quote from Ivan Karmazov from the book. Ivan says this, in this whole context, I want to see with my own eyes the hind lie down with the lion and the victim rise up and embrace his murderer. 
I want to be there when everyone suddenly understands what it has all been for. But then there are the children, and what am I to do about them? That's a question I can't answer. For the hundredth time, I repeat, there are numbers of questions, but I've taken only the children because in their case, what I mean is so unanswerably clear. Listen, if all must suffer to pay for the eternal harmony, what have the children to do with it? Please tell me. Though few can express the words with the grace and power that Dostoevsky sculpted into Ivan Karamazov's mouth, who hasn't felt the same question at some point grind at your soul? Especially those of us who believe in a loving God. The children, what am I to do about them? It's really not a problem for an atheist. If you don't believe in God, I'm not saying atheists don't fret over those things and aren't pained by those things, but they don't present the kind of philosophical challenge that they do to theists. Children being ripped apart by hunting dogs, by gods, babies bayoneted. This is just what it means to live in an absurd, godless universe that was created purely by chance. Okay? It's not a problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's a problem for them in the sense that it bothers them, but it doesn't present a philosophical problem for those who believe in a loving God, a loving, all-powerful God. This isn't any new. In the third century before Christ, a fellow named Epicurus asked this question. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then from where does evil come? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? That's the gist of the question, as I said. Now, there are many logical arguments for the existence of God. That was what my whole last talk was about. I don't want to go through them all again, but very quickly, you've got, you, you've got you know, the moral argument, where does morality come from if there's not a God? As I used an example before, I used, say the Nazis won the war and convinced everybody in the world that it was okay, anybody with one Jewish grandparent should be murdered. If morality is a purely human construct, and everybody believed that, then how could it be wrong? If morality is something we as humans create alone, and everybody believes, hey, the Nazis were right, and anybody with one Jewish grandparent ought to have been murdered, then ultimately it had to be right, because if humans create morality, well, if you're not comfortable with that, which a lot of people aren't, then that, for many people, that's a powerful argument for, the, for a transcendent morality, a morality from above, and where else would that come from but from God? Then there's the cosmological argument, which I talked about. I mean, ultimately, in the end, either nothing created the universe or God created the universe. I'm not going to go through the whole thing now, but because nothing is the only thing that doesn't need an explanation prior to it, and an eternal God doesn't need an explanation prior to it. So you got either nothing created the universe or God. And I think logically God is a lot more logical than saying nothing created the universe. Then you got the argument from design, incredible design. I made the point that's kind of ironic. 
that the more complexity science finds in life, the less logical and less feasible becomes their explanation for the origins of that, because they say it all occurred by chance. And yet, some people just, in fact, one of the century's greatest scientists argued that space aliens came and seeded life on Earth because there's no way it could have risen by chance in the number, estimated number of years of the universe. And again, even if you believe in space aliens, that doesn't solve the question of where did the space aliens come from. So my point in all this is, I'm not going to repeat all that. I don't feel like going through all that again. I just went through it for an hour. There are a lot of rational, logical reasons for believing in God. But none of these arguments in and of himself proves the existence of God. All of them together, no, neither. They're good as far as they go, which I guess, which isn't far enough, or I guess as everyone would believe. But no matter how good or logical the evidence, and as I said in my last talk, I believe the evidence and the logic and reason for exist, the evidence for God is much more logical and reasonable than for atheism. But no matter how good the moral argument is, the theological argument, the cosmological argument, either together or separately, you put them all together, none of them answers, the, even begins to answer Ivan Karamazov's question. The children, what am I to do about them? However logical and reasonable those proofs are, those arguments are, they're no more logical and reasonable than the question. How could the God, how could the God of the moral, teleological, and cosmological argument be all-loving and all-powerful while evil exists? I think this is inevitably the most logical and reasonable question asked in any world where faith in God coexists with Eight-year-olds being ripped to shreds by hunting dogs. As one philosopher put it, if God is perfectly loving, he must wish to abolish evil. If he is all-powerful, he must be able to abolish evil. But evil exists. Therefore, God cannot be both omnipotent and perfectly loving. I mean, who here hasn't wrestled with this? I mean, we've all wrestled with this. I still, even now, after all these years, wrestle with it. Who believes in God doesn't wrestle with this? If God is all-powerful and could do all things, why is there evil? Unless, though, you start to understand ultimately what omnipotence means. And this idea of omnipotence doesn't necessarily mean everything that we think it does. Omnipotence can't do what is logically impossible. What do I mean by that? Can omnipotence create a triangle that has four sides? Can God create a triangle that has four sides? No, because the moment it has four sides, it's no longer a triangle. Can omnipotence create a circle with four right angles and in the edge? Can omnipotence do that? Can God create a circle that's got four right angles? No, because the moment it's got four right angles, it's no longer a circle. Can omnipotence make two plus two equal five? 
No, because the moment it's five, it's no longer two plus two. And here's the point. Can omnipotence create a love that is forced? Okay, think about this for a minute. Can God create a love that is forced? I'd say no, because the moment that love is forced, it's no longer love. Just as a triangle, to be a triangle must have three sides. Love, to be love, must be freely given. To force love is to annihilate it. It's like when a proton meets an antiproton. They meet and instantly they vanish. Love, by its very definition as love, must be freely given. Otherwise, it's something other than love. Love, to be love, has to be free or it's not love. Without freedom, love is as impossible as a Euclidean plane without breath or width. Think about this. God can create obedience without freedom. He can create law without freedom. He can create order without freedom. He can create compliance without freedom, but not love. God can force every creature in the universe to fear him. He can force every creature in the universe to worship him. He can force every creature in the universe to obey him. But God can't force. He cannot force a single creature in the universe to love him. Can you see the limits here? Because the moment God forces love, it's no more love. It's no longer love. By definition, as a circle, to be a circle needs to be round. Love has to be free or it's not love. And here's, I think, the crucial point on this whole question of evil hinges. The only way human beings, in order for us to love God, we have to be free, morally free. We have to have the option not to love or else it's not truly love. And the only way humans could have moral freedom, true freedom, is if we have the potential to make immoral choices. Without that potential, without that option for immorality or evil, humans are not morally free. And if we're not morally free, we cannot love. Can you see the point here? Moral freedom doesn't demand that wrong choices are made. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Only the potential to make them. Without the possibility to do wrong, moral freedom would be an illusion. Somebody once argued, well, couldn't God create morally free beings who would choose only the right? Could he create morally free beings? No, because I think your concept of freedom is very limited. Okay, to be truly morally free, it means to be morally free. It means to have the option to do wrong. Or else you're not truly free. Go back for a minute. Think about, you know, I'm not going to get there now. You read about Lucifer. You read in I, I can't, what's this, Ezekiel or Isaiah. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in him. You've got a perfect being created by a perfect God in a perfect environment. And yet ultimately iniquity was found in him. How could that be? 
How could that be? Bible says God is love. Love is the permeating essence throughout the universe. God is love. God wants us to love him back. And Lucifer, the only way Lucifer could love God is if he was free. And, and, and how else could iniquity, how could a perfect being in a perfect environment, iniquity was found in him. Obviously, perfection included the potential to make the wrong choices, to make immoral choices. Otherwise, it never would have happened. It never would have happened. And why is that? Because I believe, again, love to be loved has to be freely given. Look at Adam and Eve in Eden. Why did God tell them, don't eat of the tree? Why did God tell them that? You know, he could have, you know, put the tree somewhere. You know, it's, it's like saying, it's like me, I tell my kid, I don't want you going to the moon tomorrow. Why would I say something that would be impossible for them to do? They had the moral freedom. They had the option to do what was wrong because love to be loved has to be freely given. Perfect beings in a perfect environment, God wanted them to love him. So he had no choice. If God wanted beings to love him, he had to make them free. Okay? Love by its very definition as love demanded that freedom. So for beings to love, okay. So let's say you're, you're with me this far. Let's say I've convinced you of this argument so far. And I think you'll read Ellen White says in numerous places she talks about, you know, love, God creating free moral beings. This leads to the next question, though. Why did God create free moral beings capable of love if he knew not only that they had the potential for evil, but that they would eventually choose evil? See, in, see one thing, in order for God to create, moral, to create moral beings who could love, he had to create them free. He had no choice. He had no choice. If he wanted free beings who could love him, he had no choice. He had to create them freely, okay? Now, I will argue that adamantly. Okay, pure logic demands that. But why did he create those beings to begin with? See, that's a different question. Freedom is a necessary prerequisite for moral-loving beings. But what prerequisite required that these moral beings be created? See what I'm saying? What, what, what did... That the universe, I think the universe existed fine for a long time without us. What kind of moral contradiction would arise if human beings weren't here? If this tiny little earth, this tiny little corner of the cosmos, you know, you know where, what required us? Are free moral beings a priori to anything in the universe? What if anything has made us a logical necessity in that our non-existence would entail a fundamental contradiction? See the point? I don't see anything logically in, you know, contradictory about human beings not existing. Again, there's a logical contradiction in a forced love. God had no choice. He had to, if he wanted free moral, be moral beings who could love him, he had to create them free. But he didn't have to create us. Why did he create us? Especially, especially if um, he knew we were going to sin. So here's where we run into a, we run into a problem. Nothing, you know, if we are not logically necessary beings, 
that an omnipotent, all-loving, all-powerful God created us without having to do so. He didn't have to make us, which must mean first he created us despite his foreknowledge that we would choose evil. And second, he created us knowing that, you know, we would do, you know, we did, we, he created us knowing that even if that we would choose evil. Okay, in other words, our, the point here, he created us knowing beforehand that we would choose evil. But if he's an all-loving God, then he would have to do this knowing ultimately that a greater good would arise out of this. Okay? Think about my logic here for a minute. Okay? If he, knowing the free beings he would create, would choose evil, and God created those beings anyway, and if God is all-loving, then he must have created those beings with the knowledge that, despite their evil choices, he could ultimately bring about a greater good that reflects his love. No matter how difficult for people like us or like Ivan Karamazov to see that point. Okay, let me summarize where we've been. God had no choice. If he wanted to make beings who could love him, he had to make them free. He had to make them morally free. He had no choice in the matter. Okay, but he didn't have to create us. He had a choice in not creating us. But God created us anyway. And because he's all-knowing, he did so with the knowledge. He did so with the knowledge that these free beings that he created would break his law, would use the freedom he gave him not to love him, would bring sin, iniquity, pain, suffering, and death. And yet he did it. He did it anyway. Now, if he's an all-loving God, And he did it anyway, knowing what would happen, knowing all these things would happen, we have to ultimately believe that he is going to bring a greater good out of it all. Okay, does that make sense so far? Can you see the logic here? But this leads to, even in many ways, even a deeper problem. If all God's ways are to be vindicated in a grand and final harmony, that vindicates God and all that has happened on earth, then the question is, how can God justify it working it out here in the dirt, in human blood, sweat, and tears, in Ivan Dostoevsky's, Ivan Karamazov's children, while he sits enthroned up in the glory of heaven? See, whatever the profound moral issues, whatever the grand moral issues that are evolved, that are resolved in the struggle between good and evil, However efficiently and permanently the promised absurdities are going are to be erased and God's going to iron out all the absurdity and wipe away all tears, the question still remains. Why should an omniscient, omnipotent God be safely ensconced somewhere up in the heavens while a God knowing the end from the beginning while he watches us fools here crawl around on our bellies, ignorant of the next moment, much less the conclusion of all things. Why couldn't whatever point this all-loving God wanted to be made, you know, you know, be made by him, by himself, 
rather than have us human beings so inextricably and miserably drawn in through no choice of our own. We didn't choose to be here. And we're in this mess. So again, let's review. Let's review, because I think that's a fair question. God had no choice. He, created, he had to create us free if he wanted us to love. But he didn't have to create us, but he did it anyway. And he did it knowing that we would sin and bring evil. But he's an all-loving God, so he's going to bring a greater good out of this whole mess. But then the question is, oh, that's wonderful. God is up there in heaven sitting in throne with the angels all around him, you know, worshiping him and praising him while we poor schnooks are down here struggling and suffering with sickness, disease, violence, war, and death. How fair is that? How, what good does that do us? Well, there's really only one answer to that question. Only one answer that I know that can even begin to help answer that question. I'm not going to come here and give you the whole answer for the origin of evil. I mean, you know, Ellen White, very clear that there is no reason for its existence. I guess the question we're dealing with is, you know, how do we justify God's love and omniscience and all that in the world with evil? Now, I want to do this. I want to switch gears here. And I'm going to come back to this point. So funny, I have an uncle. He just recently died. Went up to New York. He was a well-known, I say well-known among writers, an experimental novelist. I mean, when his death, the New York Times had a full-page thing on him. And my uncle's a typical New York intellectual, very secular. Very secular. Anytime I'd go up and try to witness to him, he just laughed in my face. I mean, just typical Manhattan intellectual. Very bright. Very bright. In fact, he had written this one novel. I tried three, four times to read it. I couldn't read it. Then recently, just the other day, I read on Slate Magazine an article about another author, and it mentioned my uncle's novel and how this author tried to pull off what my uncle pulled off in his novel, and after that, I went back and read my uncle's book again. Now that I understood what he was doing, after four times, I was finally able to read it. That's the kind of writer he was. But in one of his novels, a different one, and he, he wrote books, no plot, no scene, no summary, no action. Everything happens inside the head of a person. And somehow he, manages to, he managed to pull it off. But all that aside, that's, his name is David Markson, but all that aside, the, I, I brought that up because here is my uncle... Very hardcore atheist. And in one of his novels, he quotes Frederick Nietzsche. Now, do you know the name Nietzsche? Probably considered, the, you know, the, what are the 20th, well, he died in 1900, but a very influential atheist. Very influential in philosophy. You know, the guy was a total nut job. But a very, in fact, I talked to somebody the other day, it was yesterday, Michael Hossel. No, it's, no, I talked to somebody else who was German and said, oh, I would love to be able to read Nietzsche in the original language because he was a very good writer. You know, one minute you're reading, you're reading a genius, but the next minute, the nutcase. But in, in it, my uncle quoted one line from Nietzsche in one of his novels. And that line 
When I read that line, I'm just bringing this up because of the irony in all this. When I read that line, it suddenly helped pull it all together for me about this question of evil in a universe by an all-loving, all-powerful God. And I guess it's ironic that my uncle, who's an atheist, would quote another atheist, and that really helped resolve this whole issue for him. I say resolve it. I guess none of us are ever resolved to evil. But it's helped me work through it to my satisfaction, the question of evil in a, with an all-loving, all-powerful, all-good God. Now, I'm going to read you the quote, and you're going to go, huh? And then I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to work, work through it a little. Because you're, you know, you're going to be expecting some great, grandiose thing, and you're going to, if you're expecting that, you're going to be disappointed. But let's try to work through this, going through what we've been through. Here's the quote. In the final analysis, one experience only one's self. Let's go here. Huh? Huh? In the final analysis, one experiences only one's self. Now let's think about this. Because it's very profound, and it answered so much for me. When we grieve with the grieving, when we weep with the weeping, and suffer with the suffering, we experience only our own grief, only our own cries, only our own anguish, never anyone else's. We bleed only our own blood. We spew out only our own spit. We secrete only our own sweat. No, no one else's, no matter how closely fused our flesh. Other people's pain comes to us filtered always and only through our own. Our own pain then is all that we will ever know. Whether a mother holding a feverish infant to her breast or a spouse clutching a dying spouse in their arms. You can't splice into any, I can't splice into your body. I can't feel a prick of your pain. I can't feel a spasm of your pain. Anything I'm going to feel, anything I'm going to know is going to be my own. No matter how loud, outrageous, or consuming, our pain is always our own. It's more private than thought. Thoughts can be shared. Your pain never can. Unlike the liver or the heart or blood, suffering is non-transferable, non-transplantable. What's yours is yours alone. You know, we think about these numbers. We think about the millions dying here, millions dying there. The numbers overwhelm us. God, how could these, you know, these millions of people die in this? How could hundreds of thousands been killed in the tsunami? How could these been murdered in the Holocaust? How could, you know, Mao starve 60 million people? Stalin murdered, you know, starved 12 million kulaks. You think of these numbers, and yet, and, and as horrible as it is, every single one of these people died only and suffered only their own pain. You can't feel any, you know, Bill, Bill Clinton once said, I feel your pain. I was shocked my favorite president lied. Clinton lied. But the point is, 
The point is you can't. All you can know is your own pain. You see what I'm saying? You can sympathize with someone. You can weep with them, but you're not feeling, you're not cry shedding their tears. You're not feeling. All you ever know is your own pain, your own suffering. Now, this privatization of pain, this personalization of anguish is good because it means that no one has ever suffered. This is the point. It means that no one on earth has ever suffered more than a single individual can suffer. Okay? Grief remains finite, hedged in always by what's as minuscule and as evanescent as the human. We know no more suffering than our own personal metabolism allows us. No more pain than our own delirious cells can carry. No matter how many miles of nerves are wired through us, and I don't know, I think there's an awful lot of nerves in us. You know, what are they but a few frayed and twisted threads in contrast to the, the eternity that engulfs us? Our finitude is our best defense. Our, fig, our, our physical boundaries are best protection. It's how fortunate that pain and suffering remains hedged in and limited by the inherent confines of our own individuality. It's hard enough, this bearing of our own pain. Imagine bearing somebody else's. See what I'm saying? I mean, I'm sure we all struggle. And our own pain and our own grief can be pretty tough. But it's never more, no matter what you ever suffer, no matter what you ever go through, it's only your own. You can't take on anyone else's because no matter what, whatever you feel, whatever you go through is still only your own. Again, forget about the numbers. The numbers are frightening. I mean, the other day, what, 50 million died after they get through the carnage of World War I only to have around worldwide, I think, was it 50 million died in the Spanish influenza? And believe me, the Spanish influenza was no way to die. You know, probably a very rough, painful way to go. You know, 50 million were awed at the numbers. And yet each one, it was all just individual suffering. No one suffered more than a single individual. There is, however, in all this this otherwise pandemic personalization of pain, there is, however, one exception to all of this. One exception and one exception alone. And maybe some of you know where I'm going. And that is at the cross. Think about this. At the cross, the creator of the universe the being who spoke the universe into existence, the being who sprinkled the cosmos with the Eagle Nebula and the Orion, the being who threaded a hundred billion billion super string loops, if I guess they don't even believe in string theory anymore, into a proton. He is the one upon whom all he shrank down into human flesh, was nailed to the cross, and had all the woe, all the pain, all the suffering, everything of the world that we know only individually, it all corporately fell on God in the person of Jesus at 
the cross, though we experience only our own fear, only our own pain at the cross, Jesus experienced it all. All the woe, all the misery, all the anguish that we know only as individually there was God on the cross. He got it all at once. The verse I think of, which says this, Isaiah 53, few simple words. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. You know, I, I'm, I generally read the Old Testament and the Hebrew, and I am a, quite a good fan of the King James. I'm not one of these King James only people. I, I don't care, but I thought the King James did such a bad job. This was one of the worst, I cannot imagine a more worse translation than this verse right here. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. You know, the, the, the Hebrew word for griefs here, makavot, makavot, it's just, griefs is just, it doesn't catch the essence of physical pain and, and emotional sorrow. It's one of the strongest words in the Hebrew Bible for suffering. He bore ours. Who's that? All of the worlds. Makavot. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Hebrew word holy. Really interestingly enough is often usually translated physical sickness. You, if you were to just hand show me that Hebrew word holy out of any context and said, what does that mean? It's eh, sickness. Sickness. And the suffering was sickness. So it says, he bore our makavot, pain and suffering. Whose? Ours. Ours is whose? It's the whole world's. He bore all the pain, all the suffering, all the makavot and the holy, the sickness of the whole world. But so what we know only as individuals at the cross, it fell on God at once. Let me read you an Ellen White quote. This is from the Fifth Bible Commentary, page 1103. Man has not been made a sin bearer, and he will never know the horror of the curse of sin which the Savior bore. No sorrow can bear any comparison with the sorrow of him upon whom the wrath of God fell with overwhelming force. Human nature can endure but a limited amount of test and trial. The finite can only endure the finite measure and the human nature succumbs. This is what I'm saying. It's limited. It's limited. We only know so much. We can know more pain than what we as individuals could know. But the nature of Christ has a far greater capacity for suffering. For the human existed in divine nature and created a capacity for suffering to endure that which resulted from the sins of the lost world. The agony which Christ endured broadens, deepens, and gives us a more exalted conception of the character of sin. In another place, she talks about the woes, the woes of the lost world falling on Christ at the cross. But you see, here and here alone, I believe that the question I asked earlier, and that question is, if there's a greater good, and all of God's ways are to be harmonized and exonerated in the grand final harmony, how can God justify working it out here in the dirt, in human blood, sweat, and tears, in the children, when he sits enthroned in 
you know, heaven with the angels serving him. Whatever the profound questions, whatever the grand moral issues resolved in the struggle between good and evil, however efficiently and permanently their, their promised answers are to erase all doubt, the question remains, why should God be up there in heaven working it all out while we're down here? And I believe in the end, ultimately, ultimately the cross is the only answer we have to the questions. However much blood, sweat, and tears have dripped here, none of them, none of us have ever suffered more than a single human being can suffer. Our suffering is limited, limited by our own finitude. Our pain never surpassed our finitude. No one ever ached more than he or she individually could withstand. The moment that threshold was crossed, death cracked it off. Death cut it off. In contrast, in contrast, far from remaining safely ensconced somewhere up in the sky, at the cross, the evils of the world and all their horrible results honed in on God at once in the person of Jesus. Does that make sense to you? Can you see the point here? He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. So it wasn't as God, you know, they, they often talked, I remember one time reading World War II, there was some general, they called him Blood and Guts Jones, I'll say. Blood, general Blood and Guts Jones. And some enlisted man said, oh yeah, great, but it's our blood and our guts that's being spilled because he's some general sitting behind a desk and they're out there getting shelled and shot and bombed. But see, what the cross shows us is the opposite of that. God didn't remain safely ensconced, but he came down in humanity, lived among us, and suffered in a way that none of us could ever suffer. That was the cost of freedom. That was the cost of, you know, God creating free beings, knowing ultimately where, what they would do with that freedom. God was willing to go through that and endure that so that we could have free choice. At the cross, all the planet's finite evils that we know only as finite beings fell on the infinite God and amassed at once. They were, I don't get the thing whether God died on the cross or his humanity, whatever. Jesus died on the cross from everything that fell on him. So where have we been? Let's try to review this. God had no choice. If he wanted us to love him, he had to create us free. Okay? God has no choice. Again, it's just the limits of omnipotence. Omnipotence cannot do what is logically impossible. That's where people run into the problem. It's, it's, it's the problem with language. Bible says God cannot lie. Scripture says God cannot lie. So there's certain things even God cannot do. God, so he had no choice. If he wanted us to love him, he had to create us free. But he didn't have to create us. Nothing said he had to create us. But he created us anyway. Now, because he's an all-knowing God, he knew 
He knew what would happen. He knew about all the evils that would come. Okay? But he's an all-loving God. So even though he knew all this evil would come, he created us anyway knowing it, but because he's an all-loving God, I have to ultimately believe that despite all this, a greater good was going to come out of all this pain and suffering. But then that comes to the question, oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. This all-loving, all-loving God, all-powerful God is going to bring out all this good out of all this. Well, isn't that nice? He's up there in heaven, you know, kicking back and doing whatever God does in heaven while we're down here living with sickness, living with makavot and holy. We're living with all that. How nice and how fair and how, how good is that? And that's a fair, valid question. And I think it's the, ultimately would be the ultimate question that I believe would kill the argument for God as we know it. But then you've got the cross. Then you've got the cross, which answers that. Answers that in a way that we can't even begin to imagine. You know, at the cross, God suffered corporately. Again, try to wrap your mind. He bore it. To me, that's the key verse. It's Isaiah, I think, 53, I think 6. He bore our griefs. The hour, you read it, it's the whole world. Christ's death was for all humanity. He bore our makavot. Again, get a, you get a concordance. Look up that Hebrew word, makavot, from the root word ka'av. It means suffering and our holy. What we know only individually, Christ, God in the person of Christ, bore corporately on the cross. And that, and that alone, I think, answers that final question about will God safely ensconced up there in heaven and we're down here. The cross answers it in ways we can't comprehend. And see, what I've tried to do here is called a theodicy. It's a word you ought to know if you don't know it. Every Adventist ought to know it. Theodicy. It's from two Greek words. Theo, God, and DK, justify. And it's basically the question of the justification of God, not as we understand justification by faith, you know, but a total different way. It's basically, it's what this question, if God is all loving, all good, all powerful, why is their pain and suffering in the world. And a theodicy is an attempt to justify the goodness and love of God in face of all this evil. But you've got to remember the definition of theodicy. It's the justification of God, not the justification of evil. And that's two completely different things. It's not like, oh, I, when you get to heaven, oh, Jesus, now I understand why my daughter was raped and murdered right in front of my eyes. Oh, praise the Lord, I wouldn't have had it any other way now that I know. That's not what, 
That's not what... Well, but if you think about it, some people think that. Ultimately, evil remains unexplainable. I would love to get into that. I don't have time, but, you know, Ellen White, I've, you know, I once wrote an article called The Inexplicable Unexplained. Wrote it for ministry. And I dealt with Ellen White's statement that there's no explanation for evil. If you could explain it, it you would, too, would be to justify it. So if there's no explanation, that means that ultimately God can't explain it. People say, oh, heresy. But no, if it doesn't have an explanation, if there's no explanation for it, then ultimately God can't explain it either because then it would be, an explic- it would be explicable. We can't explain it. God could. So this is not a justification for evil. Ultimately, it's a justification for God. And Ellen White talks time and again about how when all said and done, we get a view of the cross. And we're going to see on the cross the creator of the universe ultimately bearing in himself not just the sins of the world, but look, all our pain, all our suffering, everything comes from sin. He bears the sins of the world, the wrath of God for the sins of the world, and our makavot and holy. That will be enough for us to learn to trust in the goodness of God. Enough for us to accept ultimately the goodness of God to where in the end, we're told that in the end, the lost, I mean, those who are saved admit God's goodness and justice. The lost ultimately admit it, and even Satan himself will admit the justice and goodness of God in the faith of evil. So I guess at the cross, God suffered more than any of us because he bore in himself corporately what we know only as individuals. So let me review this one last time where we've been. God had no choice. If he wanted beings to love him, he had to create them free. Didn't have to create us, but he did it anyway, knowing what we would do. But if he's an all-loving God, he's going to have to bring a greater good out of it. And yet the question is, okay, he brings this greater good out of it. Why, he's up there in heaven and we're all down here. How, that's really nice. How wonderful. And then the only answer I know is the cross, which where he suffered more than any one of us, any individual human will ever suffer. Now, it doesn't fully answer Ivan's question. The question about Ivan's children. The children, what shall I do about them? Doesn't fully answer them because I don't believe they're ever going to be fully answered. I don't believe it can be answered. Because if you can answer every case of evil, then what? You're justifying it. So there is a good reason why why so-and-so's daughter was raped and murdered in front of her. Oh, there is a good reason why, you know, six million Jews were gassed and burned alive or whatever, however you want to. I mean, if you can give a good reason for it, then you're justifying it. And I don't believe evil will ever be justified. Because to justify, well, who wants to justify? Ultimately, though, in the end, God is going to be justified. 
And that was the question we were dealing with. How could God be all loving, all good, all powerful, and evil exist? And we went through our little litany and we ultimately come to the best answer we have at this point, which I think more than sufficient, is the cross. And that helps me live with these questions, as unanswerable as they are, which for now is good enough. Indeed, when I really try to grasp the cross, I say it's more than good enough. Well, I've only got a few minutes left here. You got any questions on this? Okay, go ahead. Speak loud so everybody can hear. Okay. All right, all right, the question is good question. How could if God if God can't do the logically impossible, then how did he do some of these miracles? Well, what is logically impossible about manna coming from heaven? Well, what's logically impossible about that? Because we don't understand it. You know, that's not a logical impossibility. That's not a logical, what's logically impossible about that? Because we can't do it. Because we don't understand how he did it. There's nothing in the definition of death that in and of itself means it has to be eternal. Okay, as we see it, as we see it. You see what I'm saying? You know, again, a circle to be a circle has got to be round. Okay, so there's nothing inherently logically impossible about those things, even though they're beyond our understanding. Okay, just because something's beyond our understanding doesn't make it logically impossible. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, again, it's still pursuing the same thing. Well, again, you're dealing with our limit. First, you know, again, I can get me off on science. I mean, there probably isn't any... There are basic laws as we understand them now. Basic laws as we understand... As we understand it now, yeah. Yeah. So therefore, that happening, a circle having four right angles, could possibly be true. Just because we don't understand that. Well, but then, but but we're dealing with definitions here, as opposed to, again, this is where you get into a, some philosophical discussion, matters of fact versus definitions. The physical world, as it appears to us now. You know, we're very limited in our understanding of the physical world, but there's nothing inherently contradictory about God. I mean, if God could speak the world into existence, I mean, Scripture says God spoke the world into existence. He could create ex nihilo. He could create out of nothing. So that's going beyond where the laws of physics and chemistry take us as well. Sure, sure. Well, I guess you, if you want to argue that, well, we understand a definition of a circle. As we understand it, a circle... Those were the only 
Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, again, we've just, we could talk more about this if you want. We've just run out of time here. But ultimately, there are certain things, all right, as we understand it, are logically impossible. But I don't see things like miracles, raising the dead, God dropping manna out of heaven as inherently in, within the definitions of those things as impossibilities. Obviously, they're not if we believe the scripture to do them. But, there, but something like love, to be love, as we understand it, has to be freely given because the moment it's forced, it's no longer love. Let's pray. Again, Lord, the question of evil is a very difficult one. It's one we all struggle with. And I thank you for the reality of the cross and for the, the understanding we have of it. And help us to see in there your suffering and help us to learn from that and to, to just somehow trust you that you who would do that would go through that. And we, as a God we can trust even in the face of all this suffering that we see. Give us the faith to reach beyond what we don't fully understand. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, or if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit gycweb.org or email info at gycweb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you'd like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it, and keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.